this is a story from George H. Guthrie uh, in his uh, NIVAC commentary on Hebrews. And Dick asked me to read this before the sermon. Antonius sat alone in a deteriorating second story apartment located in a slum on the Esquiline Hill in Rome. As the rain pelted the age-worn wall outside, a plate of bread and vegetables and a cup of sour wine rested on the makeshift table. The room had turned dark with the coming of the storm, and as Antonius lit a small oil lamp against the gloom, with the light, hungry roaches materialized, scampering to the dark safety of the cracks in the wall. In the apartment next door, a baby cried, and the infant's father screamed obscenities at the infant's mother. An urgent conversation rose and faded as an unseen pair of business partners walked down the stairs. Somewhere in the muddy street below, a unit of Roman soldiers marched past, driven by sharp orders from their commander. Antonius sat alone, thinking. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly fellow named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruits and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become as annoying as gnats darting to and from in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel. Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment. But each time he turned the other cheek and received a slap in kind. And yet he bit his lip nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom, but since the expulsion of the Jews under the emperor Claudius, Christians had continued to be harassed to various degrees by both the Jews and the pagans. Upon the expulsion, some had, some had suffered imprisonment, beatings, and the seizure of their properties, that was almost 15 years ago now, and Antonius had not been part of the Christian church at that time, but had heard about the conflict. In fact, his own grandfather, the ruler of the synagogue of the Augustines, had been one of the most outspoken opponents of the Christians. When at 17, Antonius converted to Christianity, the old man almost died, declaring Antonius dead in a shouting match that ended in tears and a tattered relationship. In recent months, the abuse of the church had escalated with the amused approval of the emperor himself, and now emotional fatigue was taking its toll. Footsteps in the hall, a scream in the night, meaningless events that nevertheless set Antonius's heart racing. He had been told about following the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow his experience was different than he had expected. In the beginning, he thought his joy would never be broken, that he would always feel the presence of God. He had been taught that the Lord, the righteous judge, would vindicate his new covenant people. Did not the scriptures, speaking of the Messiah, say that God had put all things in subjection under his feet? But the church had been taking a great beating lately, and members of its various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief, and some in their disillusionment had left the church altogether. Antonius Bardavid remembered the traditions of the uh, synagogue and the support of the Jewish community 
the joy of the festivals and the solemn celebrations of the Jewish calendar. He appreciated the fellowship of Christ's community, but he genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors and he missed the members of his family. He watched them from a distance as they walked together by the Tiber River. Some of them would still not speak to him and he passed them on this and they passed him on the street as they would a Gentile. That was difficult. And today his loneliness closed in around him like a dark, damp blanket. To make matters worse, he was one of the poorer members of the church. When Antonius became a Christian, he lost his job as a tailor's apprentice in the Jewish quarter. He now spent his days sorting rotting produce, sweeping the floor, swatting flies, and receiving orders from obnoxious Roman slaves shopping for their rich mistresses. He stooped so low as to take pieces of rotten fruit home to supplement his meager food supply. Even rich men's slaves fared better. Earlier in the week, Gaius, the kitchen slave of an equestrian who lived in the area, tossed him a handful of overripe figs, saying, Here, Christian, change your cannibalistic diet by taking a bit of good fruit. Laughter hung with the gnats in the air. To be poor and a Christian invited double portions of ridicule. Antonius had missed the weekly meal and worship for the past two weeks, and his heart had cooled somewhat towards the little house group. A spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him, cautioning him concerning his loss of perspective. And yet in recent days, he had begun to snuff such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius's bitterness over his current circumstances was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumor had it that the leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonio's curiosity, uh, Antonius's curiosity was aroused and he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood house at which the fellowship was to meet. Entering to the gathering room, he spoke to his greetings to several friends who also looked tired from the day's work. The hostess offered something to drink and friendly banter, but dejection hung like a cloud over the broom. When the meal was finished, the group's leader, a jolly and godly man of almost 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph was a bit out of breath, having come from a meeting with the other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved as he stood smiling before a group of about 20, his hands shaking from advanced age. After a few words, Joseph took a breath and explained to the other leaders and uh, that he had talked the other leaders into allowing his group the first reading of the scroll. With a twinkle in his eye, the elder said, I believe you will find this quite relevant. He unrolled part of the parchment and began reading with vigor. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son.
I encourage you to open up your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking this morning at Hebrews verses 1 through 4. We're beginning a, a new sermon series this morning on the book of Hebrews. And we've just heard the, the likely background of, of Hebrews, personalized in the story of a, a fictitious Christian named Antonius. Most likely, Hebrews was addressed to some followers of Jesus in the first century for whom it was hard to be Christians. They had been persecuted. Their faith had cost them a great deal. And they were tired of the pain and the fear and the stress, tired of the suffering, tired of the trouble and the difficulty. Previous to following Christ, these Christians had worshipped in the local Jewish synagogue. And now they were thinking, why not just go back to the synagogue? We can still worship God there. We can still read the Bible there, the Old Testament anyway, which was the only Bible they had at that point. The New Testament was just being written at that time. And it would be so much easier to go back to the synagogue. They could avoid a lot of the persecution and the trouble that, that they were facing because of Jesus. We don't know for sure where these people that Hebrews is addressed to were located, but like Antonius, Antonius in the story, there's a good chance that they may have been in Rome. Well, the author of Hebrews writes to them actually a sermon, which is then most likely read by someone in the local community to exhort them to um, exhort them that, that leaving Jesus behind and going back to the synagogue would be a big mistake. How does the author do this? By explaining why Jesus matters, why Jesus is absolutely awesome, why Jesus is worth all of the trouble and the suffering that, that comes with following him. Why Jesus is so much better, so much superior to anything that the synagogue alone could offer. Which means Hebrews isn't a message that's politically correct by today's standards. But let's hear it out and, and see if it can make its case. I assure you the effort will be worth it. Let me tell you why I love Hebrews. For one thing, even though it's kind of like the, the letters, the epistles of the Apostle Paul, it's full of arguments and rich theology, yet I find Hebrews a lot easier to follow than Paul. Paul, sometimes you read him and you think, I don't get it. Where is he going with this argument? Well, Hebrews tends to be clear. It tends to be logical. It's sequential. It's easy to follow. And second, its language is absolutely beautiful especially in the original Greek, which of course most of us can't read or speak, but it kind of shines through in English too. Just to give you an idea of the beautiful language of Hebrews, the very first line of Hebrews in Greek is full of alliteration. Let me, let me try to bring this through by retranslating it in English in a way which preserves the alliteration. And listen for the, the P sounds that are alliterated, which are all P's in Greek, P sounds in Greek as well. In the past, God spoke to the patriarchs through the prophets in many places and many parts. Hebrews is full of this kind of beautiful poetic language. But there's an even bigger reason that I love Hebrews, and that is that it focuses us again and again on Jesus 
on how awesome Jesus is, not so much on theology, though that's certainly there, not so much on how to live a good life, though that's there as well, but on Jesus himself as a person. This sermon gets our eyes on Jesus. Of course, we have the four gospel accounts to do that for us as well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they focus mainly on the historical life of Jesus in the past. What Hebrews does is focus us on Jesus now as well. Jesus ascended in heaven, uh, ascended into heaven, alive now as our Lord, as our priest, as our King. And so Seeing Jesus afresh is an exciting part of, of this book. Even, and even though we may not be being persecuted like those Hebrews was originally addressed to, this book is, a rel- is relevant to us. And the reason why is because like the first hearers, we also face a choice. A choice between pressing on in following Jesus, which is a costly life, or retreating into a more comfortable religion. And like the original hearers of Hebrews, we are sometimes tempted to quit, to quit on Jesus. For the Hebrews, it was quit and leave. Leave the gathering of Jesus' followers and go back to the synagogue. For us, the temptation maybe isn't to quit and leave, but rather to quit and stay. To, to stay in the church, but to quit on Jesus, to quit following him, to quit pursuing him, to quit giving him our all, to quit putting him first in our life. Big mistake, the book of Hebrews says. And that's what this book will seek to show us and to remind us of. So let's dive in. This morning, we're we're just going to dip into the first four verses, which is the introduction to this sermon. And right away, the author of Hebrews plunges us deep into the wonder of Jesus. Immediately, Hebrews exhorts us to look at Jesus and to listen to Jesus. The author begins, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. The author is is referring to the Old Testament here. God spoke to us in the past through the prophecies of the Old Testament. And almost everyone who wrote part of the Old Testament was a prophet. Moses is considered the first major prophet. God certainly spoke through him. And and what's recorded in the first five books of the Old Testament includes those prophecies. Then we have what are called the historical books. And I don't know if you've, or rather, sorry, the historical prophets, they're called. Um, I don't know if you've heard them called that, but, but the Jews and the early Christians called them the historical prophets. These prophets, by God's inspiration, wrote the history of God's people the way that God wanted them to see it. And so this is from Joshua all the way through King, Kings and Chronicles. Then we have in the Old Testament those we think of as prophets, Daniel, Isaiah, Amos, and others. And even the Psalms contain many prophecies. 
so much of the Old Testament in one way or another at various times and in various ways was spoken by prophets and it was God speaking to us. The author of Hebrews is affirming that God speaks to us and God speaks through the Bible. But Hebrews says, but that was how God spoke in the past. Now God has spoken a new word. In these last days, the author says, verse two, do you realize, I hope that, that the new Testament says we are living in the last days. The last days began, according to the book of Acts, when Jesus came and died and rose again and then ascended to heaven and poured out his spirit on his followers at Pentecost. Acts 2, 17, you can look it up. And here in in Hebrews 1, 2, it's repeated. In these last days, God has spoken to us afresh. How? By a son, Jesus Christ. Not a prophet not an angel, not a wise man, not a book, but God's very own son. So if we want to hear what God has to say to us now in these last days, we better get to know God's son, his his own son, whom he sent to speak to us. And notice it's not just that God speaks to us through the son, but also God speaks to us by his son. In other words, it's not just Jesus' words that are the message, not just Jesus' teaching. No, Jesus himself is also the message. Jesus' person, who Jesus is, Jesus is God's message to us, incarnate, the word made flesh. God himself, or rather Jesus himself, is God speaking. When we look at Jesus, when we get to know Jesus, we are hearing God's word to us. Are you ready to listen? Well, then to help us listen, to help us hear God's word, that God spoke by giving us his son, the author of Hebrews goes on and tells us seven amazing things about Jesus, just by way of introduction. And these will be unpacked all through the, the sermon, so, uh, the sermon of Hebrews, and we won't be able to all unpack them all this morning in this sermon, but we will as we look at Hebrews in, in the weeks to come. But let me list the seven quickly, and, and then we'll briefly summarize them under three major truths. So first of the seven, the son is set to inherit all things. Second, the son is the one through whom God made the universe. Third, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Fourth, the sun is the exact representation of God's being or essence. Fifth, the sun is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Sixth, the sun provided purification for our sins. And seventh, the sun is now seated on God, or at God's right hand in heaven. And then verse four throws in one more bonus point, which will be elaborated on in the rest of chapter one. Oh, by the way, the son is totally superior to the angels as well. Wow. Did you think Jesus was just important because he died for our sins on the cross? 
That in itself is awesome, right? It's super important. It's super awesome. I don't want to diminish it one bit, but there is also so much more awesomeness to Jesus too. And Hebrews is going to give it all to us. To say, don't quit. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't settle for just a comfortable religion. Follow hard after Jesus. Pursue him. Get to know him. Trust him. Give your life to him. Let him be your king and your savior. Let me try to summarize these seven things that Hebrews rattles off for us in these first four verses. Um, Just in, in three ways. First, Jesus is the meaning of the universe. Second, Jesus is the revelation of God to us. And third, Jesus is the key to world history. So first, Jesus is the meaning of the universe. Here, I'm trying to summarize three things in verses two to three. Jesus is going to inherit all things. Through Jesus, God made the universe, and Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. Scientists look at the universe and they see laws of nature. They see laws of physics. And as they probe more and more, there are lots of things they don't understand about the universe. Dark matter, dark energy, neutrinos, other phenomena that they can't yet explain. And for every discovery they make, every question they answer, they unearth 10 new questions that they don't understand yet. But even, the, even the, the, the questions they can answer are just what questions and how questions. What is the universe made of and how does it work? What the scientists can't answer is the why question. Why is the universe even here? And where is it all heading? And so our modern culture, based on science, looks at the universe, and and some people conclude that it's all just meaningless, that there is no purpose, there's no answer to the why question, no bigger picture, no meaning at all, just random chance. Other people look, and, and they say, no, we see progress on planet Earth down through history, that for some inexplicable reason in the universe, life is improving, things are progressing, but we don't know why. We have no idea why. Well, contrary to that, the author of Hebrews looks at the universe and he sees he or she, we we don't know who the author was, they see Jesus Christ. That Jesus, that God made it all through Jesus Christ. And Christ is sustaining it all moment by moment. And that Jesus Christ will inherit it all as his own, as his possession in the end. In other words, Hebrews doesn't look out and see an empty, cold scientific universe subject to laws and and, um, formulas understood and not yet understood, but rather Hebrews sees a personal universe made by someone, made for someone, and upheld and sustained moment by moment by someone. And that someone, Hebrews tells us, is Jesus Christ. 
keys the meaning of the universe. For Hebrews to know why the universe is there, you have to look at Jesus. To know what it's all about, you have to look to Jesus. To know where it's going, you have to look to Jesus. All that exists is his. We're his. That's the first thing that the author of Hebrews wants us to know. And that's why it makes no sense to leave Jesus, to give up on Jesus. To, to, To give up on Jesus is to saw off the branch that you're sitting on. To quit on Jesus is to give up on life, to give up on reality, to give up on the past, to give up on the future. Well, then second, Hebrews wants us to know that Jesus is the revelation of God to us. Hebrews expresses this in two ways in in verse three. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, and Jesus is the the exact representation of God's being. In other words, the best way to see what God is like isn't to look at nature. It isn't to just somehow feel God in your heart. It isn't to find a guru somewhere to help you meditate. It isn't even to attend church or read the Bible per se. The best way to see what God is like is to look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the clearest truest picture of God that we've got. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. What does this mean? Well, I love uh, what the theologian J.A. Packer says about glory. He says, glory is God on display. Glory is God showing us who God is. And often glory is associated because of who God is with brightness, with light, with shiningness, to show how special God is, how amazing, how valuable, how attractive, how honored and worthy of honor, how different from us. And Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of that glory. Like a sunbeam is the radiance of the sun. To see a sunbeam is to see the sun's brightness. So to see Jesus is to see the radiance God in his glory is radiating. And then second, Hebrews continues, in Jesus, we see the exact representation of God's being. The Greek word here for representation is the word character, which probably sounds familiar to an English word we know. Character, back at that time for the Greeks, was what you got When you softened some wax and you took a metal seal and you pressed the seal into the wax, it's an exact representation of the seal. So when God stamped God's self on the soft, pliable stuff of human flesh and human soul and human mind and human emotion, what we got was Jesus. Jesus is, as a human, the exact representation of what God is like. God's character, God's qualities, God's attributes, they are seen most clearly in Jesus. Better than in the Old Testament, better than Moses showed us, or Isaiah showed us, or David showed us, or anyone else, we see what God is like in Jesus. 
Jesus is God's greatest revelation of what God is like. A true, dependable, clear, reliable representation. And again, I realize this isn't politically correct. It's far more fashionable to say there are many ways to God, all equally valid. But what Hebrews would suggest is that while maybe there's some truth to that, maybe there are dim reflections, uh, vague glimpses of God here and there as people grope after God in various religions, what Hebrews is saying is if you really want to see God clearly, look at Jesus. Because Jesus is God's own son. In Jesus, what can be seen of God is clear, it's bright, it's true and accurate. So why would you pass him by and settle for something dim and foggy instead? Then third, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the key to world history. Verse three, Jesus provided purifications for sin. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That is God. Jesus is the key to world history. Would you agree with me that apart from Jesus, history is kind of stuck? We have this problem called evil, or as Hebrews calls it, sins, that keeps messing us up. It manifests in everything from broken families to world wars. It leads to discouragement, to disillusionment, to distrust, and to discord. You turn on the news this past year, and everyone's focused on racism, and that's one manifestation of this problem of evil, along with a million others. In the first half of the 20th century, war was the big headline focus. Two world wars in which millions died, and the lives and livelihoods of countless others all over the world were destroyed or damaged. And all through history, we humans have had this problem of sin in its many, many manifestations. This problem of not getting along with each other, not playing nicely together, not working together cooperatively. And also this problem of a strained relationship with God. And if Jesus is the meaning of the universe, and Jesus is the one through whom we know God, this sin problem cuts us off then from the source of our life, from Jesus, from God. Because we keep ignoring God, we keep forgetting about God, we keep disobeying God and distrusting God. And so history has been stuck. And we have some fits and we have some starts. We make a little progress here and then we have a huge setback there. Well, Hebrews tells us that Jesus came to get us unstuck. How? He made purification for sins. He cleaned up our messy sin problem so that we can move forward again. How he did that, Hebrews will unpack later in great detail. But here, Hebrews moves on quickly to what Jesus did after he provided for, uh, for purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God to rule and reign as our king. That's why Jesus is the key to history. Jesus got us unstuck. He solved our problem, our sin problem. He fixed the flat tire of 
or the engine uh, that wasn't making the car of history go. And then he got behind the steering wheel as our leader to steer us back onto course in history. So world history ends up with a happy ending so that it ends up where it needs to go. Jesus is the key to history. Oh, Hebrews says, that's why we should listen carefully to Jesus. Because through Jesus, more than through anyone else, God has spoken to us. And Jesus is the meaning of the universe, the revelation of God, and the key to history. You know, this is why I've always felt that the debate about whether Jesus is the only way to God has been a bit misguided. For some Christians, it's gone like this. We know that Jesus is a way to God. We believe that. But is he the only way? We're not so sure about that. Among evangelicals, the debate's gone like this. Well, we know Jesus is the only savior for the whole world. We believe that. But does Jesus only save those who know he's their savior? Or does Jesus save all good people, even if they don't know that he's the one saving them? Well, here's my problem with these debates and these arguments. They're arguing about the wrong question. Because the question they're normally debating is, who's going to escape hell and go to heaven when they die? Right? If you boil it down, that's often the, 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 the crux of the debate. Is Jesus going to save certain people from hell or is Jesus going to save everyone? And that is a very important question. But, but guess what? It's not really a big enough picture to get at who Jesus is or why he came. Jesus is so much more than the one who keeps us from going to hell. Rather, according to Hebrews, Jesus is the meaning of the universe. It was created through him. He sustains it moment by moment. It belongs to him, and he's going to inherit it all at the end. And Jesus is the revelation of God, the very radiance of God's glory the representation of God's being. I, I realize that the, the video went off. I don't know if we can turn it back on or you might scroll through your different Zoom pictures and, and find the one of my laptop. The words might be out of sync, but we'll just, we'll just bear with it. So Jesus is uh, the, rep uh, the revelation of God, the meaning of the universe. And third, Jesus is the key to history. He solved the sin problem and he has taken charge and reigns over all. So does it matter if we know him, if we acknowledge him for who he is? The author of Hebrews sure believes it matters. Of course, this author is not writing to those who have never had a chance to know about Jesus. He's, um, not answering the question, well, what about the tribes, you know, in the jungle who've never had a chance to hear about Jesus? Rather, the author of Hebrews is writing to those who have had a chance to get to know Jesus, to us, in other words. And Hebrews is saying to us emphatically, don't get weary in following Jesus. Don't fall back 
into just observing a comfortable religion. Stick with Jesus. Follow hard after him. He's totally worth it. In fact, he's everything. He's the center and the key to everything. Listen. Listen to him. Listen to what God is saying by sending Jesus to us.